0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Monica Molinaro.
1: And I'm Connor
2: Chedo.
0: And tonight we're here with Amy Lewis.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> no problem at all. Um, so to start, Amy, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing here?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm a Master's of Science of Nursing student over here at Western with the School of Nursing. And... Uh, Under the supervision of Dr. Abe Udshorn, I'm studying public policy advocacy, uh, competencies in public policy advocacy for healthcare and social service provider students.
0: Okay. So there's a lot to unpack within that, I feel. So where do we start? Is this, was this a project that you had conceptualized yourself or?
1: So it started with my participation as a graduate research assistant on the Mobilizing Narratives for Policy and Social Change Project. And that's a mouthful as well. But um, in that project, we are looking at how narratives are used to create policy and or social change. And as a subset of um, that project, I was able to ask different questions of the research participants. As as we had been interviewing participants in this study, uh, we found that at least in our thematic group of poverty and inequality, that not everyone is using narratives solely in their work. And it was almost like stories were a bit on the back burner. And, and so I wanted to ask questions that were more broad as to how community-based organizations engaged in public policy advocacy work and um and the knowledge and skills that they they use in that work because we have students we have our healthcare and social service provider students who are expected to graduate with competencies or skills in advocating for healthy public policy but when you speak with students, or you speak with the graduates, or you speak with professionals, even faculty, um, those skills aren't aren't really de- established. So they don't really know how and um, how to advocate for healthy public policy in these policy issues, and and that's that's an that's a problem because a lot of our health is influenced by public policies. So. There's also a risk that if you don't know how to advocate for public policy in the right way, you could risk harming your own career or harming the initiative that you're trying to achieve change in. So it's really, it's really important that we have providers who are exposed to stories of people and, and, and their inequities um, to understand how to make change in the conditions that lead to contributing to these inequities and that they do it well and they do it while protecting their career and they do it effectively while maintaining relationships with those who are in decision-making power so it's um there's a lot to it it's a big project there's a uh, a big aim here but it's it's for the greater good um so i'm taking uh the from the interviews that I'm conducting with these community-based organizations. I'm looking at how they conduct or engage in public policy advocacy work and then I'm going to extract the knowledge and skills that they use to do this work and then I'm going to translate those into educational competencies that schools can apply to their programs. And hopefully without changing needing to change their programs because they won't do that (laughs) (laughs) that's really hard to do I imagine (laughs) I would
0: think so right okay well I already have a couple of follow-up questions from that you kind of already answered one for me but I guess I think I want to start off with why narrative
1: why narrative so the narrative was it, it was selected in the larger study so it's about mobilizing narratives and there's not a lot of research on narrative work and how narratives are used to create change, but we see some initiatives like the Me Too movement and um, and others here in Canada, uh, like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where stories are used to highlight the experiences of people who are experiencing inequities. And they can be very powerful in in an emotional way and compel people motivate them to act more than stats so if i were to say like 18 percent of people um have gone through such and such an experience that might not be as significant as me explaining my story of having gone through a struggle and what it was really like Mm. to go through that and then relating it back to And there's so many more people who are going through this like me.
0: Definitely. I think that's a great thing to clarify first. When we say narrative, we literally mean a narrative or story. Um, And from that as well, I totally agree. I think narratives have the ability to produce an effective response, an emotional Mm -hmm. response. And especially because they're related or they're not necessarily relatable, I should say, but people feel something when they hear other people tell stories, right? You're, that's an ass- very evocative of yeah. kind
2: of more emotion, I think. In, and that's an assumption of
0: narrative inquiry and narrative research is humans are naturally storytelling beings. Yeah. We yeah. live by telling stories. And so what better way to be able to communicate this type of work than by sharing stories or helping people understand other stories, especially when it comes to experiencing inequity
1: and and it's hard it's hard for people who are experiencing inequities to come forward and make themselves vulnerable to say uh, that they are going through something like that like mm-hmm. we're um we're on the poverty and and inequality subgroup so who wants to come forward and say that they're living in poverty they're not able to pay rent they're experiencing homelessness or some sort of issue that has contributed to their inability to work or to participate in society in a way that um, we expect others to. And the, I think the power of stories is bringing to light the struggles or the experiences and the strengths that those people have and to really humanize them and their experience and to see that, okay, it's it it's not a matter of blaming the person. There's There's things around people that lead them to be in these conditions, too. And those things are changeable. And that's the important thing, is getting it back to the fact that some some of these things, many things, are changeable. And they're changeable through having healthy public policy.
2: So another question I was actually thinking of is when you talked about, especially, how hard it is to come forward. Is the kind of work you do always direct interview? Or how often are narrative studies based on written testimonial? Is that something that ever really happens in your line of work? Or is it, uh, is, is your study purely like actually engaging face to face typically with the people who are telling the stories you're using?
1: So this is uh, both studies. So the mobilizing narratives and the developing competencies studies are case based uh, research. And so we're looking at cases um, of organizations and research studies that have used narratives or storytelling or art-based forms mm. um, to promote some sort of policy or social change or to create that. And in my study, um, it's it's using face-to-face interviews with with mostly the Executive directors of these organizations to talk about how they engage, but there's there's uh, there's different ways that you can go about analyzing narrative. Narrative can be analyzed through through written form. Um, there's theater uh, as as narrative. There's even photos uh, and using photos to to inspire a narrative that can be analyzed. But in this, in this case, um, in, my, in my research, I'm using face-to-face interviews to with a semi-structured interview guide. So I have a list of questions that I ask and some probes that I can follow up on uh, to get at the heart of my questions, is which are, how do these organizations conduct their public policy advocacy work, and what are the knowledge and skills that they use to engage in this work? So by asking them to explain um, how they do it, I can even extract what those knowledge and skills are. So I'm not sure if that's answering your question.
2: Oh, you know, it totally it totally does.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, in the context, for your study then, since you're doing these face-to-face interviews, I know that um, a common problem, quote-unquote, I'm going to say problem because that's how other people phrase it, um, with qualitative studies is... A limited sample size oh <laughs> um, right so you know how many people for your study um, are you
1: planning so I have on eight cases care? and it will be um, it there's a, a diversity of cases of organizations who are represented uh, in qualitative research though we don't we don't want to it there's no use of uh, power we're not looking for a power analysis or representation um, or we're not looking to generalize, mm-hmm. we're looking for some themes and so I guess a good range would be about 4 to 12 or so okay. but uh, it, it just continues sampling continues until you reach some sort of thematic saturation you're analyzing you're looking at your transcripts you're analyzing them for patterns and when you start seeing the same patterns over and over and over again you know that you've reached some some form of saturation when you're not seeing something that's new so yeah the the sample size might be small in comparison to quantitative methods but they have different purposes so that shouldn't affect really like the the validity of what is being found there.
0: Definitely, because a lot of the time it's about the richness of the data itself, not the number of people that you end up recruiting for the study. So um, I guess with that, are there certain themes that maybe you're starting to come across or you're hoping that you're to see in the research?
1: Well, one one theme that I'm starting to see is the importance of relationships and advocacy so the funny thing is that some people thought that advocacy work um when they were relaying their stories to me uh when they approached their board of directors about advocacy some of their board members were pretty scared they're thinking of activism so like protests and rallies and being very boisterous and out there and very loud and that all that does is it it's effective for some things but in a lot of the work that community-based organizations do which also relates to healthcare providers you need to maintain relationships good relationships with those who are in power because it's a long-standing relationship that you're going to have in the community so those rallies and demonstrations and protests are effective for like that in that moment but then what are you gonna do the next day when you need to sustain yourself, like yourself being the organization and the people that you're serving? So when they explain that advocacy is really about being diplomatic and having good relationships, getting to know the municipal um, government that's in power, the counselors, MPs, MPPs, there's a lot of um, relationship building that goes on in the background. So they're meeting with them, they're discussing what their strategy is, what their, uh, what the goals are of the municipal government and how can that community-based organization with, with their mission and goals work alongside the government to help them achieve their aims. And that that which happens over time helps to create and build and strengthen those relationships when it's done well and it's done well consistently.
2: It really just sounds like uh, communication, which I think is interesting. It's big. It's, that's that's I, I think not the way advocacy is often used. I think it it is definitely an important note that it's it, it seems easy to confuse with like uh, protest and. And uh, what's ultimately mm-hmm. disruption, or, or or trying not to, um, trying to like fight against advocacy. Definitely, I guess, is a lot more, but working with exactly. Yeah. I yeah. guess
0: from that as well, in terms of this advocacy and this communication that's happening, do they ever allude to the fact that having this communication and establishing these relationships do end up at the end of the day helping these individuals that are experiencing different inequalities?
1: They they do because it helps to sustain services and programs and funding. Those relationships are really critical, but and it's not just in the decision making of the municipal government. I'm not I'm not saying that because they're working really hard too to s- service people within their community. They have a, a very f- they have a fixed finance uh, financial budget, so there's limitations in what they're able to do but they from how i from what i'm understanding in in the mobilizing narratives project when i'm speaking with them uh, they're they're working really really hard to to try to serve those in their community but they're also they're also experiencing limitations in the resources that they have to solve the problems
0: right so it ends up almost being a little bit cyclical in that yeah. Like, how are we supposed to get ourselves out of this turning wheel if the people that we're going to don't have the resources and then the people that don't have resources are going to the community-based organizations? But in order for community-based organizations to get more help, they need to go back to those right. municipal resources.
1: So there's it It requires innovation and just looking at how things are done and how can they be done differently differently. Um, and, and that goes to a lot of the research work that's being done at Western and with, uh, you know, Lawson Health uh, uh, Research Institute and, and Cressy, the Center for Health Equity. And uh, there, there's just so much activity here on campus that is looking at how do you rework systems so that it's, it's cost-effective and most of all better for people who are using these services and these programs and for who are running them the the community-based organizations are not um, they want to help save the save people right but there it's uh it just there's just a balance of what is it that they can do and um, who's able to help who can help sometimes they're they're they have a goal in mind, like to build something new, like to build a new shelter, and uh, and they want to raise funds for that. They need to raise funds, and they so much funds that they haven't raised before, and they're being told, "Well, no, no, you can't do it because you've never done it before." So even those attitudinal roadblocks, those can be uh, major barriers, but. Um, but persistence, I'm, I'm hearing another theme in, in the work is persistence in in the advocacy work that you're doing. Because this is a, often over a long long time that this change has to occur. So it, it's not even within a year's time. A lot of this is happening over the period of a decade. And it's kind of fast, like that's relatively fast. So if we look mm-hmm. at supervised consumption facilities, which has been a huge issue in the media. That started in Canada. Um, Advocacy for that started around the early 1990s in Vancouver. It originally
0: started out of a van, didn't it, if I'm not mistaken?
1: Uh, Well, you know, there were a lot of underground um, uh, injection sites. That were going around, so it's I, I don't know exactly where it all started like that, mm-hmm. but uh, the first sanctioned facility was in uh, a building on in Vancouver, in the downtown east yeah. side of Vancouver. But there were um, yeah, there was a lot of advocacy work. Even nurses, uh, the Registered Nurses Association of British Columbia had uh included supervised injection as a nursing scope of practice, which allowed nurses to oversee supervised injection of illegal substances and prevented them from getting charged with a crime because it was part of their scope of practice. That's so cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Sorry, Connor, I know you had a question.
2: <laughs> I was going <laughs> to ask what the, the supervised consumption term was, and then I realized it's safe, safe injection. So, yeah, so the <laughs> it's, term it's keeps changing.
1: Good the term um, safe injection sites, supervised consumption facilities, and um, it it is changing a lot. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Okay. So my next question then kind of goes to the back end of your research in terms of developing different competencies or tools to create different competencies, if that makes sense, if I'm using those terms correctly, I guess. Um, Do you have anything in mind currently? Are there things you're seeing in the data that makes you think like, oh, maybe setting something like this up would be good or Mm -hmm. educating in this way might end up being beneficial? Is there anything like that that you're seeing or at least that you maybe have sparked some ideas about?
1: So from, from the data, I'm hearing from the participants that experiential learning opportunities is critical. So being... Being involved in um, in the work directly and seeing how it's done is one of the best ways to learn about how to do this. Uh, but if that can't be done, then there's also a case study that you could do in class, like case study um, case study work from in from more informal discussions with. Other students and even for myself I'm m- more geared toward the experiential learning side uh, because you can read about something but it's it's a lot different when you're actually involved and you're seeing it and you're in the moment and you're you're watching it like going to the the gallery and uh, and seeing those arguments and the case the case for something unfold um, you can also evaluate in your own mind, like was that persuasive? how did what did they do that worked? What did they say that maybe didn't work? and how do I feel about what they said or about their issue? Am I persuaded? So there's um, there's many opportunities for for learning here, but I think one of the best ones is uh, the experiential.
0: okay. Within that, then, do you have examples of specific experiential learning, not processes, but I want to say experiential learning experiences <laughs> then because I don't know how else to say it that students could go through that you would think would be most beneficial. And by all means, I understand that you might be extrapolating here. but yeah,
1: so I'm just kind of going off the cuff. Uh, i'm I'm thinking, if, if they can see a real-world issue that's happening in their community and if they're able to take that problem that they're interested in and break down a plan as to how they could advocate for that particular problem, then that, that's uh, a good, uh, I guess, strategy to go about about uh, learning it experientially. So you can start it in the, in the classroom. You can start it with uh, um, with going over how, with students engaging in what is interesting to them and then having them develop a, a research, a strategy on how they're going to research the problem, how they're going to identify the problem, what they should do to present the problem, who they should present it to, and who might they involve in, um, in addressing it.
0: Right. So like a problem-based learning strategy.
1: It, it kind of, it, yeah, it kind of is, yeah. OK.
0: So moving forward then, um, why did you want to get into this kind of research? What motivated you?
1: It's something that I've always been attracted to making change on a broad level. So a lot of people expect, when I say that I'm a nurse, because I am a registered nurse, a lot of people ask me if I work in a hospital, or they expect me to. And really nurses can be, what, what I didn't know until I actually entered my first year of nursing school, was that nurses can work in education, they can work in research, they can work in community, they can work internationally they can travel they can do so much there's so much flexibility and really they I don't think that it's the profession is as valued as it should be for what they are what nurses are able to do and that is looking at conditions that lead to illness or health and being able to spot conditions that contribute to health and conditions that contribute to illness and putting people in positions so that nature can act upon them. And I'm borrowing that from uh, Dr. Lori Gottlieb, which I heard her say at, at a conference, which was just beautiful, is that nurses put people in positions for nature to act upon them. So one of the conditions that affects people is policies and rules and there are some stupid rules that are out there that hurt people and hurt a broad many of people and that is what motivates and compels me to engage in this work at of nursing at a systems level
0: right and I think the work that you're gonna do or the work that you're currently doing is going to have quite a big impact I think being able to develop these competencies, you know, is a step in the right direction. And from there, we can kind of get the ball rolling and it can snowball from there. Or at least that's what the hope is, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, So with that, then, kind of closing in on this interview, is there any way people could get in contact with you if they wanted to ask you any questions about the research or get in touch with you or maybe know someone that they could refer you to for the research? Is there any way that people get in contact with you
1: yes yeah, so um, it's probably best to get in touch with me by email and my email is a Lewis lewis 92 at uwo.ca
0: great and do you want to quickly plug the website for the bigger mobilizing narrative website as yes, well? yes
1: that's narratives.ca
0: great okay so if anyone needs to get in contact with Amy or wants to check out that website they are more than welcome to do so we'll also put um, her email address and the link to the website up in the episode description so that they're very easy to access for everyone as well Um, so with that then, Amy thanks so much for coming on the podcast thank you we loved having you on and I know right I can't wait to see what your research ends up bringing out I'm very excited for it
1: thank you very much
0: oh no problem um so this has been gradcast the official radio show and podcast of the society of graduate students here at western university if you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us please email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com you can follow us on instagram facebook or twitter at gradcast radio and if you'd like to listen to us we're on chrw 94.9 every tuesday at 6 pm you can also listen to all of our podcasts on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcast Also, select podcasts can now be watched on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. So the channel Gradcast Radio. Everybody, please go subscribe. Our videos are premium content. This episode, once again, with our guest, Amy Lewis, was wonderful and was hosted by me, Monica Molinaro.
2: And me, Connor Cheda.
0: And thanks so much for listening and have a great night.